Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware, we have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit, but frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to Just Keep Rolling, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm Katie, that's Ellen, and we are both officially fully vaccinated. Now we can make out! That's for the OnlyFans account. Yeah, we should probably just keep rolling. Moving on. Into the rolling rehash. Last week, we covered Chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curses, and the surprisingly accurate corresponding film scenes. The new defense teacher lived up to his mad, moody reputation. Hermione stated the obvious. Ron actually got to answer a question. Seamus got called out for being nasty and having no idea how to whisper, unless you were reading the book where Lavender is the one getting called out. An eight-legged fuck-nope managed to somehow get us to feel an emotion besides fear. Neville gets triggered but is later rewarded with tea, compliments, and a book. Harry drops all of the eaves on Fred and George, and the first members of Hermione's new house elf fan club are somewhat less than enthused about their new administrative roles. During episode 78, Lack of Tact, we had two Potter ponderings. The first one was, if there is a spell to see what the last cast spell by a certain wand was, couldn't that spell be tweaked to show the last spell cast on a person? Quincy said, I don't know, I'm not a fucking horror, but I think it must be a difficult spell. I mean, even McGonagall said spells cast on living things are more difficult to do than casting them on inanimate objects. True. Mm-hmm. Carly asked if that's how spells work, though. Are there people who work to tweak spells, just randomly saying little different words? She feels like that would be a hella cool job. In short, she has no clue, but she does have more questions. You ask those questions, girl. We will try to ponder you some answers. Mm-hmm. Diana thinks if it were possible, it would be, at the very least, frowned upon. It's too similar to something like Veritas Serum, in her opinion. A witch or wizard could have something personal exposed or something. Bodily autonomy and all that jazz. Which is a really interesting perspective, since we were thinking about the murder muntress who lied and said they were under the Imperious Curse, and how the Ministry had trouble determining the liars from the truthers. Mm-hmm. But... It is the kind of spell that could have had the potential to be abused. Oh, definitely. I also had a really random thought wondering if a person could have someone else cast it on them. Like Lucius could have Narcissa cast Imperio on him. So if the ministry did check to see if the spell had been on him, it would be apparent that it had. Between that and a large donation, I doubt they'd look much further into it. That's a very valid point. I didn't think about it that way. Right? It just mm -hmm. popped into my head when I was putting this together. So. Yeah. Kylie thinks that even if they could, it might be pointless. Being surrounded by magic and magical things, there are probably thousands of spells being cast on a person throughout the day. It would be like looking for a needle in a haystack, really. I agree, it would. I never really thought of it like that. But there's probably a lot of residual magic left behind. Oh yeah, I imagine. Robert says that the spell they use is the reverse spell effect priori incantatum. A priori is a Latin phrase which means from the earlier. This spell will cause the user's wand to regurgitate ghosts of its previously cast spell. 
Incantatum is derived from the Latin incantare, meaning sing or recite, often used in relation to magic or witchcraft. Well, the word maledictus translates to curse, so the spell priori maledictite could be invented for this occasion. Hmm. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I'm willing to accept that as headcanon. Same here. Anytime we need a spell made up, we're going to go to Robert. Right? <laughs> Robert's our resident spellmaker. Max doesn't think CSI Hogwarts gets enough TV ratings to be a thing. So from that, I assumed that he figures they don't get too involved in investigating things like that. I'd totally watch CSI Hogwarts, though. Right? So would I. Just saying. Our second Potter pondering was, it seems like Moody could have been teaching the same lesson about unforgivable curses to Fred, George, and Lee's class, too. Do you think he was? If yes, what was the cutoff for that lesson? Was he teaching it to the first years, too? If no, what do you think he was teaching the younger students? Carly is sure that because he did it with the fourth years, he would do it with the six years. However, what is Barty Crouch Jr.'s pedagogy? If he's trying to be like Moody, she doesn't think he would have done it with the younger ones. Fourth and up, since that could include Harry. Maybe he was teaching younger students basic defense spells like Expelliarmus and the shield spell. And maybe even some horror techniques of disguise. You can totally tell that Carly is a teacher to throw in the word pedagogy. Right? <laughs> I was going to say, that's that's some fancy wording right there. Yep, that is, <laughs> that is, that is. Quincy said, as for Moody, well, he's a fucking nutter, isn't he? Giggity. <laughs> if he isn't teaching that exact lesson, then I'm sure it's something really close. Also, did Moody have a whole lesson plan planned out and, spoiler alert, Barty Crouch Jr. stole it while he was posed as him? Did Barty Crouch Jr. make his own lesson plan? If so, that's fucking dedication, I gotta say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> and besides this book, when does he ever say, Constant vigilance ever again? That question will make sense when we get to book six. But back to what I was saying. If he isn't teaching the same thing, it's probably something slightly less fucked up, if even a little less fucked up at all. How come Rita never snooped in on his classes? That story was ripe for the picking. Like, I can see the headlines now. Mad-Eye Moody's magic mishaps. <laughs> yes. Right? Then the article about him performing unforgivable curses on the children. Oh, Rita wasn't too good at her job, was she? Anyways, I'm probably way off topic. Love you. Bye! Love you too, Quincy. <laughs> that is an interesting question, though. We'll have to talk more about that when we get to the stuff about Rita. Yeah, definitely. Because it just raised some questions for me. Mm -hmm. Robert says he thinks Moody taught the unforgivable curses to fourth year and above. And as for the younger students, maybe moderate to severe curses that may be slightly frowned upon by the fudge-faced piece of shit minister. Mm. Kylie thinks that it would be funny to see what Moody would do with the first years. Probably not the same lesson. She pictures him surrounded by a bunch of rowdy kids with a what the hell did I get myself into look on his face. I love that idea. Well, you know, he was expecting the seventh years and he was expecting the older kids, but probably once you get to the 11 year olds, he was like, oh shit. <laughs> Scaring the shit out of them. And <laughs> right? <laughs> why is that one crying? Child, why are you crying? There's no crying in defense against the dark arts. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> we'll see how much you're crying when I crucio you. 
Yeah. Something like that. That might be a little far-fetched, but... Max thinks that Moody was probably getting them to capture spiders he could torture. You know what? (laughs) I could totally see that. (laughs) Right? Good responses this week. Thanks to everyone who commented. Hopefully we will have an update soon on when we have a phone number set up for you to call in if you want. Yeah, I have the number, but I need to go buy a phone. And since I had to go and break my laptop, that repair was basically what I would have put towards the phone. So well, way to go. It was a bit of a setback, <laughs> but hopefully soon. Mm-hmm. Our trivia question was, what injured all three of the heads of the participating schools during the tournament of 1792? All three of the heads of schools were injured by an escaped cockatrice that the champions were supposed to be catching. Hermione read about it in Hogwarts, a history. Shocker. Right? (laughs) And for another shocker, congratulations goes to Mike Riley. (gasps) He didn't even have to share the win with Max this week. And he's up to a seven-week streak. If he can win this week, he will tie Max and Quincy's eight-week streak record. I mean... Can he do it? Can he? (laughs) This is actually the second time that Mike has made it to seven weeks in a row. Last time, Max cut him off completely. It wasn't even a tie. He got in there and answered first, breaking the streak. And it was so close. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see if he gets it this week. Oh, I know. It's getting so intense. (laughs) So we shall see. But for now, let's just keep rolling into chapter 15, Bobaton and Durmstrang, and the corresponding film scenes that totally exist in the wrong place in the movie. Chapter 15, Bobatons and Durmstrang. Early the next morning, Harry wakes up with a plan to protect Sirius. He gets dressed and heads down to the common room to write him a letter saying he just imagined his scar hurting. He was half asleep the last time he wrote. He tells him not to bother coming back. Everything is fine and normal. He then heads out the portrait hole and through the castle, slightly detained by Peeves, who tries to overturn a large vase onto him. When he finally gets to the Owlry, Hedwig is still angry with him for his lack of gratitude the night before, and Harry has to suggest asking Ron if he can borrow Pigwidgeon to convince her to deliver his letter. She nips his finger a little harder than usual before taking off with the letter, leaving Harry feeling uneasy. At breakfast, Hermione admonishes Harry for lying to Sirius, but Harry doesn't care because he doesn't want Sirius to go back to Azkaban because of him. Ron tells Hermione to drop it, and she falls silent. Harry tries not to worry about Sirius over the next couple of weeks, though he does keep looking anxiously for Hedwig whenever the post-owls arrive. He wishes that he had Quidditch to distract him from his horrible visions of Sirius being cornered by Dementors, but it helps his lessons are becoming more difficult and demanding, especially defense against the dark arts. Moody announces that he will be putting the Imperious Curse on each of them in turn. Hermione is uncertain about this since it's illegal, but Moody insists that Dumbledore wants them to know what it feels like and says that if she would rather learn the hard way, she could be excused. He points at the door and Hermione turns pink, muttering that she didn't mean she wanted to leave. Harry and Ron grin at each other, knowing Hermione would never want to miss such an important lesson. One by one, Moody calls the students forward and makes them do the most extraordinary things under the Imperious Curse. Dean Thomas hops around the room singing the national anthem. Lavender Brown imitates a squirrel. Neville performs a series of astonishing gymnastics. But no one seems to be able to throw off the curse. When it's Harry's turn... 
He moves to the front of the class and a wonderful feeling spreads over him as Moody casts Imperio on him. He hears Moody's voice in his head, telling him to jump onto the desk. Harry bends his knees and prepares to jump, but another voice in his head asks why and says it's a stupid thing to do. Moody's voice again tells him to jump onto the desk, and the other voice refuses. After a final demand to jump, Harry both jumps and tries to stop himself from jumping, and just ends up knocking over the desk, leaving himself in considerable pain. Moody is impressed that Harry fought it and nearly beat it, and insists on putting the curse on Harry four more times until he can throw it off completely. At the end of class, Harry hobbles out of the room, muttering about how Moody talks like they're going to be attacked at any second. Ron agrees while skipping on every alternate step, having had much more trouble throwing off the curse than Harry did. He calls him paranoid, saying that he understands why the Ministry was glad to be rid of him, and wonders when they're supposed to read up on resisting the Imperious curse with everything else they have to do. All of the fourth years are noticing an increase in the amount of work they have to do, and Professor McGonagall explains that it's because they're getting closer to their ordinary wizard levels. Dean points out that they don't take them until their fifth year, but McGonagall insists they will need all the preparation they can get. She points out that Hermione is the only person who has managed to turn a hedgehog into a satisfactory pincushion, and reminds Dean that his pincushion still curls up in fright if anyone approaches it with a pin. Harry and Ron are very amused when Professor Trelawney tells them that they received top marks for their homework, especially when she reads sections out loud and commends them for their unflinching acceptance of the horrors in store for them. The amusement fades as she asks them to repeat the assignment for the next month, as they are running out of ideas for catastrophes. In History of Magic, their only ghost professor, Professor Binns, has them writing weekly essays on the goblin rebellions of the 18th century. Professor Snape has them researching antidotes, but they take this one seriously as he's hinted that he would be poisoning one of them before Christmas to see if their antidote works. Professor Flitwick has them reading three extra books to prepare for their lesson on summoning charms. Even Hagrid is adding to their workload, suggesting that they come down to his hut on alternate evenings to observe the scroots that have been growing at a remarkable rate, despite not being able to figure out what they eat. Draco flat out refuses, and Hagrid tells him that he will do what he is told, or he'll be taking a leaf out of Professor Moody's book, commenting that he heard he made a good ferret. This makes all of the Gryffindors laugh, and actually silences Malfoy, which was particularly satisfying to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. When they make it back to the entrance hall, they can't go through because a large group of people are gathered around a sign announcing that the delegations from Beaubaton and Durmstrang will be arriving at 6 o'clock on Friday the 30th of October, ending lessons half an hour early so students can drop off their bags and assemble in the front of the castle to greet their guests before the welcoming feast. A Hufflepuff, Ernie McMillan, acknowledges that it's only a week away and wonders if Cedric knows before heading off to tell him. Ron asks who Cedric is, and Harry responds, Dickory, saying he must be entering. Ron does not like the idea of that idiot as a champion, and Hermione defends Cedric, saying he's a really good student and a prefect. Ron tells her that she only likes him because he's handsome, and when Hermione denies liking people because they are handsome, he gives a false cough that sounds like Lockhart. The appearance of the sign makes the tournament the only conversation over the next week. 
rumors over who would be champion, what would be involved, and how the foreign students would differ from themselves were flying around. The castle also seems to be undergoing an extra thorough cleaning, causing the caretaker Argus Filch to behave extra ferociously to any student that didn't wipe their feet. Other staff members come across oddly tense as well, and on the morning of the 30th of October, they all find the Great Hall decorated with enormous silk banners representing Hogwarts and its houses. Harry, Ron, and Hermione join Fred and George at the Gryffindor table just in time to hear George say something is a bummer, but if he won't talk to them in person, they'll have to send their letter after all. He can't avoid them forever. Ron wants to know who's avoiding them, and Fred says he wishes Ron would. Ron instead asks George, what's a bummer? And George responds, having a nosy get like you for a brother. Harry changes the subject, asking if they have any ideas on the Triwizard Tournament, and George reveals that McGonagall wouldn't tell them anything about how the champions are chosen. Ron wonders what the tasks will be, saying he thinks they could do them as they've done tons of dangerous stuff before. Fred points out that it wasn't in front of a panel of judges, and that the champions get points based on how well they've done the tasks. Harry asks who the judges will be, and Hermione answers that the heads of the participating schools are always on the panel, saying that all three were injured during the tournament of 1792 by a rampaging cockatrice the champions were supposed to be catching. She mentions that she read it in Hogwarts A History, and goes on a little rant, saying the book isn't entirely reliable, and should be called A Revised History of Hogwarts, or a highly biased and selective history of Hogwarts which glosses over the nastier aspects of the school. Ron wonders what she's on about, and she explains that she's extremely upset that Hogwarts A History doesn't mention house elves anywhere in over a thousand pages. Harry shakes his head and focuses on his breakfast. He and Ron's lack of enthusiasm didn't curb Hermione's determination, and she keeps badgering them to wear their badges and persuade others. She is also taken to making sure people realize that their sheets are changed, fires lit, rooms cleaned, and food cooked by magical creatures who are unpaid and enslaved. But most people regard it all as a joke. George leans in and asks Hermione if she's ever been down in the kitchens. She said she hasn't, that students aren't supposed to be, but he cuts her off to explain that he and Fred have, and they've met the house elves, who are happy and think they have the best job in the world. Hermione says that's because they're brainwashed, but she's drowned out by the whooshing sound of the post-owls arriving. Harry sees Hedwig and pulls Sirius's reply off her legs. Sirius tells him that it was a nice try, but he's back in the country and well hidden. He asks Harry to keep him posted, keep switching owls, and not to worry about him. Ron wonders why he has to keep changing owls, and Hermione says that Hedwig will attract too much attention if she keeps returning to where he's hiding. Having Sirius nearer is reassuring, but he's still worried. He thinks Hedwig and she takes a drink of his orange juice before flying off to the Owlry for a good sleep. Attention is lacking for lessons that day as everyone is anticipating the arrival of their guests. Even potions class is more bearable since it's half an hour shorter. When the bell rings early, they rush to the Gryffindor Tower, deposit their books and bags, and pull on their cloaks before heading to the entrance hall. The heads of houses are getting everyone organized, and Professor McGonagall leads the Gryffindors out in front of the castle. Ron wonders how they are arriving, thinking maybe by train, but Hermione doubts it. Harry suggests broomsticks, but Hermione thinks not, since it's too far away. They continue to speculate until Dumbledore announces that he sees the delegation from Beaubaton's approaching. 
They all look around and a sixth year points out something very large flying towards the castle. One first year thinks it's a dragon, and Dennis Creevy tells them not to be stupid and says it's a flying house. It ends up being a giant powder blue horse-drawn carriage, pulled by a dozen enormous winged horses, which lands with a crash and causes Neville to jump backwards. The carriage door opens and a boy in pale blue robes jumps out of the carriage and folds down some golden steps before stepping back to let the largest woman Harry has ever seen step out of the carriage. She's basically the same height as Hagrid, yet somehow seems even more unnaturally large. When she steps into the light of the entrance hall, Harry can see that she has a handsome olive-skinned face, large black eyes, and a beaky nose. Her hair is in a bun at the base of her neck, and she's wearing black satin and many magnificent opals. Dumbledore leads the applause, welcomes Madame Maxime, and barely has to bend to kiss her outstretched hand. She calls him Dumbledore and asks after him before introducing her pupils. Harry turns his attention to the dozen boys and girls in blue silk robes looking up at Hogwarts apprehensively. Madame Maxime asks if Karkarov has arrived yet, and Dumbledore says that he should be there any moment, asking if they would like to wait and greet him or step inside and warm up. She opts for them to warm up, but worries about her horses, which Dumbledore assures her their care of magical creatures teacher, Hagrid, is well up to the job of caring for them. She tells him to inform Hagrid that the horses drink only single malt whiskey, and Dumbledore bows, assuring her it will be attended to. Madame Maxime heads inside with her students, and Seamus asks Harry and Ron how big they think the Durmstrang horses are going to be. Harry figures if they're any bigger than Beaubaton's, even Hagrid won't be able to handle them. After a few moments, an odd eerie noise is drifting towards them from the darkness. Lee Jordan yells and points at the lake where the surface begins to ripple and bubble, and they watch as a magnificent ship rises out of the water, looking strangely skeletal. It glides towards the bank, and then seemingly large people exit the boat and begin walking towards the castle. Their bulk is because of their cloaks, which are made out of a thick, matted fur. The group is led by a man in sleek silver furs that match his hair. He greets Dumbledore, who addresses him as Professor Karkaroff. Once in the light of the castle, they could see that he was tall and thin, like Dumbledore, but his white hair is short and his goatee does not entirely hide his weak chin. He looks up at the castle and says, Dear old Hogwarts, though when he smiles it doesn't reach his eyes. He continues speaking, saying it's good to be there, then hurries a boy named Victor along to get him out of the cold. Harry and Ron watch as the curved-nosed, thick-eyebrowed boy passes, and they realize that he's none other than Victor Crumb. We actually already talked about Bobaton and Durmstrang's arrival since they shoehorned it into the starter term feast. So we're just going to revisit how they did it then as we discuss how it was written in the book. Yeah, the book chapter starts out with Harry waking up early in the morning after he receives Sirius's reply and heads to the empty common room with a plan. He takes a piece of parchment and writes a quick letter to Sirius telling him that he only imagined his scar hurting. He feels totally normal and there's no reason for him to come back. None at all. Yeah, we never actually see a response that he's returned, but we never really knew that he left, if we're being honest. Yeah, that's true. So, for the movie, that is. Right. Obviously, we knew all this in the book because, you know, it told us. Right. Details. Yeah. Details, shmeetails in the movie. Newell. Newell. Who needs details? 
But Harry leaves the common room and heads towards the Owlry, held up momentarily by Peeves while he's on his way. Mm, Peeves. Peeves. The poltergeist, who was trying to overturn a large vase onto Harry. Mm. Oh, not Ed Sheeran. That's right. (laughs) Considering that Peeves is the epitome of slapstick comedy, I'm kind of surprised that this movie didn't try to include him. Right. Though I imagine having him randomly appear after not being in the first three films would be weird. A little bit, I suppose. Sure. But he should have been in the first three films. Exactly. So. I say that's an easy fix. Yeah. <laughs> Just put him in the first three films. Arr. But anyway, Harry makes it through the castle and reaches the cold and drafty room, which has owl droppings and straw all over the floor, and finds Hedwig nestled between two other owls. He makes his way clumsily over to her where she proceeds to show him her tail feathers, still upset about his lack of gratitude from the previous night. Because Hedwig's got some shade on her. <laughs> right? <laughs> Dude. Fuck you. That's very much like the owl version of Kiss My Ass. Right? Literally. <laughs> In order to get her to respond, he suggests that maybe she's too tired and he should borrow Pigwigeon. And then she'll let him give her his letter. <laughs> Yeah, a little reverse psychology there. Apparently it works on birds. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Though she does give him a harder than normal nip on his finger, she takes the letter and flies off, but it leaves Harry with an uneasy feeling in his stomach. At breakfast, Harry tells Ron and Hermione about the letter, and Hermione scolds him for lying because his scar had been hurting. But Harry says, so what? He won't let Sirius go back to Azkaban because of him. Hermione begins to say something else, but Ron tells her to drop it, and she actually listens. What? What? That's how you know this isn't the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Harry spends the next few weeks trying not to worry about Sirius, but he can't help but anxiously looking around every morning when the post arrives. Which, I mean, I get that, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, I can track my Amazon packages, but I'm still, like, nervous every time a truck pulls up in front of my house. <laughs> Is that it? Is that that it? it? Is that it? (laughs) He regrets that he doesn't have Quidditch to distract him from horrible visions of Sirius being cornered by Dementors, but his lessons are getting more difficult, most notably Moody's defense against the Dark Arts. Everyone is surprised when Moody tells him that he will be putting the Imperious Curse on all of them so they can see its power. I mean, of course they're surprised. That didn't happen in the movie at all. (laughs) They didn't see it coming. (laughs) I think it would have been really interesting to see how the actors would have responded to pretending like they were being controlled. Yeah. Like, what kind of stuff? Could you imagine them actually having Neville do gymnastics and stuff like that? Like (laughs) That would have been pretty awesome, though. However, we may have just gotten more terrible CGI, like Neville falling off the broom in the first one. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We did a recording for our patrons of us watching the first movie. Mm -hmm. And I swear to you that I felt like I was watching a video game the entire time. So <laughs> It was very... We were watching it on a computer screen so that we could be near our microphones, and it just looks completely different on a computer than it looks on a TV. It was just so funny. <laughs> there were other extenuating circumstances that affected our judgment as well, but we won't be talking about We won't about go into those. It's, Become yeah. a patron, and you can learn all about it. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho... It would have been interesting to see how they would have handled that scene. And it would have been really fun to see the actors pretend like they are being controlled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really would have liked to see the inner turmoil of Daniel Radcliffe 
trying to fight off the Imperious Curse. Yeah. Like, that would have been really great to see. Yeah, I agree. But we didn't. It didn't happen. We didn't get to. Wait, it didn't happen? What? What? What movie was I watching? (laughs) (laughs) In the book, Hermione says that it's illegal, and she's uncertain about this lesson, but Moody says that Dumbledore wants them to know what it feels like. She's welcome to leave if she would rather have someone else put it on her and be able to control her completely. Burn. Moody's not missing any punches with this, is he? Nope. Hermione turns very pink at this and mutters that she didn't mean she wanted to leave, and Harry and Ron share a grin, knowing that Hermione would never miss a lesson this important. (laughs) I believe they say that she would rather eat boobotuber pus than miss a lesson like this. That tracks for Hermione, definitely. Until she actually encounters some undiluted later, then that might change that perspective. I don't know. It's Hermione, though. We'll talk more about (laughs) it later. Moody calls up the students one by one and puts the Imperious Curse on each of them, making them do extraordinary things. Dean Thomas hops around the room singing the national anthem. How fun would that have been to see? Oh, God. Forget one line wonder. Give the boy a song. Right? (laughs) Let him really belt it out. (laughs) Lavender Brown imitates a squirrel. That's totally actable. Sure. Definitely. And Neville, as we mentioned, performs a series of gymnastics that he most certainly could not do on his own. Maybe he could. Maybe Matthew Lewis can. I mean, who knows? Or they could have like a really awkward stand-in stunt (laughs) double. (laughs) Imagine having that on your IMDb. Like, what have you been in? Well, I was Neville Longbottom's stunt double. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh, Neville. I'd do it. I'd be Neville Longbottom stunt and double. I can do some gymnastics. There you go. Put me in a wig, in a suit. I got this. You'll look just like him. Give me those teeth. (laughs) Nobody seems to be able to fight the curse, and they only recover when Moody removes it. When it's Harry's turn, he moves to the middle of the room and has a wonderful floating sensation spread over him as Moody casts the curse on him. Mm-hmm. He hears Moody's voice telling him to jump on the desk. And another voice wonders, why? It's a stupid thing to do. He decides that he doesn't want to jump on the desk and the voice in his head tells him to jump now and just ends up feeling considerable pain because he smashed into a desk and basically fractured his kneecaps. Awesome. Much to Moody's delight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... That sounds messed up, but I can see why Moody would be excited about that. I think the delight was more to the fact that he resisted, exactly. not that he actually injured himself resisting. Exactly. It, I would like to think has much less to do. It could be both. A little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moody insists on putting the curse on Harry four more times until he can fully throw it off. Harry hobbles out of the classroom and mutters that Moody talks like they'll be attacked at any moment, while Ron agrees, skipping every other step. He had much more difficulty throwing off the curse than Harry, so he's still skipping. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Ron looks around every which way, in front Mm -hmm. of behind him, like up on the ceiling, (laughs) before calling Moody paranoid. (laughs) I mean, he would know. Right? (laughs) Takes one to know one. But he says that it's no wonder the ministry was happy to be rid of him. And he wonders when they're supposed to find the time to read about resisting the Imperius curse with everything else that's required of them this term. Wasn't he just like going on about Moody being so great and, oh wait, that was the movie. 
(laughs) (laughs) Awkward. What? All of the fourth years notice the increase in their workloads as well. And Professor McGonagall tells them that their ordinary wizarding levels are getting closer. And this is all to prepare them. When Dean says that they don't take the OWLs until fifth year, Professor McGonagall insists that they need all the preparation they can get. She says that only Hermione has been able to successfully transfigure her hedgehog into a pincushion and reminds Dean that his hedgehog still curls up in fright at the sight of a pin. That's so messed up to do to a poor hedgehog. Right? It makes me feel so bad for the hedgehog. (laughs) Especially because it's made of pins. Right? You're about to, like, (laughs) poke him. Like, he's about to get poked. And he curls up in fright. The poor little hedgehog. Poor hedgehoggy. You've traumatized your hedgehog, man. That sounds dirty. It does. What? I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I'm saying it. Probably. Let's just keep rolling. Rolling on. Harry and Ron are amused that Professor Trelawney gave them top marks for their homework. <laughs> and when she reads some of their predictions, she commends them on their acceptance of the horrible things in store for them. <laughs> oh, Trelawney. You're going to drown, get rampaged by a hippogriff, you're gonna <laughs> lose a bet. But you're in such good spirits about it. Harry's going to die by decapitation, and she still assigns them to do it again for the next month, (laughs) which causes their amusement to fade because they're totally running out of ideas for catastrophes. And apparently Harry's just going to be dead. Yeah. Well, apparently now he has to predict his ghost life. Right. (laughs) Speaking of ghost life, their ghost professor... Professor Binns has the student writing weekly essays about the 18th century goblin rebellions. Weekly essays. What a jerk. Ah, yeah. I can't even do weekly episodes of a podcast. I mean... I drag her kicking and screaming into this. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Snape's assignment to research antidotes is taken more seriously since he hints that one of them will be poisoned before Christmas to see if their antidotes work. I don't know if that's allowed. Well, I mean, neither is the Imperious Curse, theoretically. That's true. (laughs) It's just interesting that Hermione has such an issue with the way Moody's doing things. But Snape does way worse and has been doing way worse to them since first year. And she doesn't make nearly as big of a deal about it. Maybe not worse, but definitely as bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just figure because they're younger, right? too. But it's not illegal to poison a student, probably, if you have the antidote right there. I mean... I'm sure it's frowned upon. <laughs> but you know, it's a potion teacher like Snape, I mean, he's very competent at potions. You know he has the real antidote right there. He's not going to let the kid die. I mean, do we know that? We probably know that. But do the 14-year-olds that have been tortured by the man for the last four years know I that? I mean... It's a terrible motivator, but it motivates. <laughs> <laughs> that's a sure way for me to die, is all I know. Because that's a sure way for me to be overly freaked out oh, you about know what I'm Neville's doing. potion's not going to work. Exactly. That's but Snape's not going to let him die. He might be a dick, but he's not going to straight up murder a student. One would like to hope that he wouldn't murder a student. Sure. I don't think he would do that right under Dumbledore's nose. He's not stupid. He's a dick, but he's not stupid. <laughs> But Professor Flitwick assigns three extra books to help them prepare for their lesson on summoning charms. Three books for one charm? How difficult is that charm? That's a lot of fucking books. Yeah. I'm sure Hermione's excited about it. But... Well, yeah. Even Hagrid has added to their workload. 
Despite still not knowing what the blast-ended scroots eat, they're growing at an impressive rate. And he suggests, except I don't think it's a suggestion, I think this is an assignment. <laughs> he just tells them they're going to come down to his hut on alternating evenings to observe them. Draco tries refusing, saying that he's seen enough of the foul things during class, and Hagrid says he'll do what he's told, or he'll take a leaf out of Professor Moody's book, saying he heard Malfoy makes a good ferret. Oh! Bam! Hagrid did a thing, man! Nice job, Hagrid. Hagrid went for blood! I love it. I kind of want him to turn him into a stoat instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's even scarier because Hagrid eats stoats. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be one little stoaty I wouldn't feel as bad for. <laughs> but the Gryffindors all laugh and Harry, Ron, and Hermione find particular satisfaction that this actually silences Draco. You gotta love when you finally find the thing that shuts the asshole up. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna turn you into a little long rat. <laughs> Ew, long rat. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it is. <laughs> They're cute. But rats are cute. Not when they turn into Peter Pettigrew. That's not a rat. That's a man. That's a man. <laughs> they make their way back to the castle, but can't make it through the entrance hall as there's a large crowd of students gathered around a sign announcing that at six o'clock on Friday, October 30th, the delegations from Bobatons and Durmstrang will be arriving. Lessons will be ending half an hour early that day, so students may drop off their bags before assembling to greet their guests for a welcoming feast. Delegation just makes it sound like they're like heads of state. <laughs> Super fancy. Yeah. <laughs> We're very important people. Yes, the delegation from Bobatons. Yes. <laughs> or as Dumbledore says it, Bobatons. <laughs> That's not how Dumbledore says it. That's how hippie Dumbledore says it. <laughs> as movie Dumbledore says it. Right. <laughs> Buttons. As we had previously mentioned, the Hogwarts students don't get the time to prepare for the arrival of foreign students. They just show up. Bam! House guests. Ernie McMillan, a Hufflepuff, says it's only a week away and wonders if Cedric knows before hurrying off to tell him. Ron asks who Cedric is, like he doesn't know. Right. And Harry says, Diggory. And then Ron calls Cedric an idiot because he does know who he is. <laughs> This was completely left out of the movie, even when it is shown that he enters, which we'll talk about more in the next episode, but the movie completely omits the dislike and competitive nature towards Cedric. Yeah. Hermione tells Ron that Cedric isn't an idiot. He's just mad that Hufflepuff beat them in Quidditch. Ron retorts that she only likes him because he is handsome, and when she denies liking people based on looks, he fakes a cough that sounds oddly like Lockhart. Lockhart. <laughs> Excuse me. I would have loved to see that. Can you just imagine Rupert Grant doing that? Oh, Rupert could have totally pulled that off beautifully. We didn't get enough good teasing dynamic between no. Ron and Hermione in the movies. No, because they were too busy making Ron look like a moron. Right. And mm. it made their relationship in the movies kind of out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more buildup in the book that just wasn't even alluded to at all in yeah. the movies. Definitely. The following week, the Triwizard Tournament is the only topic of conversation to be heard throughout the castle. Rumors are passed around about who will be the Hogwarts champion, what the tournament will involve, and how the students from Bobatons and Durmstrang are different from them. 
the Hogwarts caretaker, Argus Filch, is even more ferocious than usual with the students who don't wipe their feet as he's doing an extra thorough cleaning of the castle. So basically, he's like my mom after she just cleaned the kitchen floor. (laughs) (laughs) My mom preparing for guests. It's exactly what that is. (laughs) That's what I'm getting. She gets so stressed out. (laughs) I think all moms do. I think all people do in general, but... I'm sure I've done stuff like that to Len before, too. <laughs> my mom's made me walk through the kitchen with, like, paper towels on my feet before. So, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> on the morning of October 30th, they find the Great Hall decorated with enormous colored silk banners representing their school and each of its houses. And the other staff members seem oddly tense. I can't imagine why they would be so tense. Is there something going on? or Bam! House guests. What? <laughs> Harry, Ron, and Hermione sit at the Gryffindor table with Fred and George, just in time to overhear George say that something is a bummer, and they will have to send the letter after all if he won't talk to them in person. Ron asks who's ignoring them, and Fred says he wishes Ron would. And when Ron asks what's a bummer, George tells him that it's having a nosy get like him for a brother. That's such a brother response. It's such a brother response. (laughs) I love them. More twins, Uh, come on. Right? Eager to change the subject, Harry asks the twins if they have any ideas on the Triwizard Tournament. And George bitterly remarks that Professor McGonagall wasn't telling them how the champions are chosen. Ron wonders what the tasks will be and says he thinks they could probably do them since they've done loads of dangerous stuff before. Fred says that they've never done that kind of thing in front of judges and explains that the champions are awarded points according to how well they perform a task. I mean, that's usually how judging goes. That's how a contest usually is. (laughs) Harry asks who the judges will be, and Hermione says that the heads of the participating schools are always on the panel because all three were injured by a rampaging cockatrice the champions were supposed to catch during the tournament of 1792. Which was our trivia question. Yep. When she sees everyone staring at her, she says she read it in Hogwarts A History and says that the book really should be called something like a revised history of Hogwarts or a highly biased and selective history of Hogwarts, which glosses over the nastier aspects of the school. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, though. It is a bit of a mouthful. That's what she said. (laughs) Oh. Oh. Ron asks her what she's on about, and she complains that Hogwarts, a history, doesn't mention house elves once in over a thousand pages. Harry focuses on his breakfast, and Hermione continues to pester them about wearing their badges. She's adamant about making sure people know that everything from their clean sheets to their warm fires and lovely cooked meals are all prepared by unpaid and enslaved magical creatures. But most people take it as a joke. I don't know, I'm on Hermione's page with this. I hate to be on Hermione's page. (laughs) I legit feel bad for house elves. Now, I don't like the fact that she says they're brainwashed. Yeah. It would go to reason that the Hogwarts house elves are treated much better than Lucius Malfoy's house elf. You know, much better than Dobby was. And maybe that's just why Dobby was so upset and so against being a house elf, essentially. But... I would assume that the Hogwarts house elves are treated, like, way better. So maybe they do actually like their jobs? I would assume they're definitely treated better with Dumbledore there. Yeah. But, like, what about when Phineas Nigellus was the headmaster? Did he treat them as well? True. It's messed up, and I don't know how to feel about it, if I'm honest. 
But the idea that they're brainwashed and that's why they don't want to be paid and treated well and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like that to me just feels ick. Yeah, definitely. But this is such a big topic. I think we should do a Potterheads a History episode oh, on it. I like that. I think that would be great. Yeah, because there's just so much to talk about. Yeah. Anyway, on with the story. George asks Hermione if she's ever been down to the kitchens, and she says she hasn't, that students aren't allowed. But George cuts her off and says that he and Fred have snuck down there before, and that the house elves are perfectly happy, and that they think they have the best jobs in the world. Hermione insists that they are brainwashed, but is cut off by the sound of post-owls arriving. So this is what I'm saying. Like, I don't like her calling them brainwashed. Yeah. I don't think that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm not is the that fan of it. maybe like Stockholm syndrome? I was gonna say, if anything, it, I would feel it was more Stockholm syndrome, which could be considered a kind of. But like, I think of brainwashing as like a cult. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll we'll explore that in this episode that we're gonna do at some point. Yes, definitely. Hedwig flies down to Harry, and he's learned something from her extra hard nip. So he gives her his bacon rinds after taking Sirius's letter off her leg. <laughs> well, it's about time, right? Jesus. Damn, Harry. Treat your owl with respect. In his reply, Sirius says that was a nice try, but he's back in the country and well hidden. He tells Harry to keep in touch, but to continue switching owls. Hermione explains to Ron that Hedwig will attract too much attention if she continues to fly to where Sirius is hiding, because snowy owls aren't exactly native to the area. Not so much. No. Harry is reassured by having Sirius near, but he's still worried. He thanks Hedwig, because he's not going to let his poor little owl feel unappreciated again. Mm-hmm. And she flies back to the owlery to have a nice long rest. I would, too, yeah. if I was Hedwig. Oh, she earned it. I'd be like, I'm out of here, guy. You just you need to leave me alone for a couple days, and then we'll talk. Okay. <laughs> Anticipation is high in the castle, and attention during lessons is not. <laughs> as everybody's eagerly awaiting the arrival of the people from Bobatons and Durmstrang that evening. Potions is even bearable since it's cut a half hour short. That definitely ups it in my estimation. Right? Since it's potions <laughs> hour, that's half a class. Right? Hell yeah. The bell rings early and Harry, Ron, and Hermione hurry back to the Gryffindor Tower to trade their books and bags for their cloaks before rushing down to the entrance hall. Again, that's way too much cardio for me. I know I bring it up a lot, but that's so much cardio. We would need to... Just, I don't know, have magical escalators or elevators or something for you if you went to Hogwarts. I'm okay with that. <laughs> the students are organized into lines by their heads of house, and the Gryffindors are made presentable and led out in front of the castle by Professor McGonagall. Harry, Ron, and Hermione speculate how their guests will be arriving. Ron thinks it might be by train, Harry suggests broomsticks, and Hermione doubts both of those. Shock. They continue discussing port keys and apparating until Dumbledore announces that he can see the delegation from Bobaton's approaching. So the closest the movie got to this was having all of the students lined up along the covered bridge to watch the arrival of the people that they would have had really no clue as to who they were. Right? Yeah. The timeline makes no sense in the movie. Mm -mm. But I think they originally had a separate start of term feast that they cut out and replaced with a later feast that showed the foreign students arrival in order to streamline the film. Probably. But I don't like it. Neither do I. Newell. Newell. Anyways, in the book, everybody looks around and a sixth year points out something much larger than broomsticks coming towards them very quickly. One first year says, it's a dragon. 
And Colin Creepy's little brother, Dennis, tells them not to be stupid. It's a flying house. Because that makes way more sense. It wasn't that far off, though. The giant shape lands with a crash, sending Neville into a Slytherin fifth year. And they all now see that it's a huge powder blue carriage pulled by a dozen giant winged horses. So a carriage is not really that far off a house-ish. I mean... It's certainly closer to a house than it is a dragon. I suppose, but not when it's being pulled by winged horses. Still not dragons. But those are closer to dragons than houses are. Oh my god, what if it was a dragon pulling a house? <gasps> I just found out how I want to travel in the wizarding <laughs> world. <laughs> no, it was actually a powder blue carriage pulled by winged horses. I gotta say, this was portrayed pretty accurately in the movie. Right? Which is nice. Strange. Just... You know, at the completely wrong time. Totally wrong. <laughs> Aside from timing, though, it was also pretty streamlined because it only showed the giant carriage nearly landing on Hagrid and then cutting right to the arrival of Durmstrang. So, like, one of the twins does make the comment about that not being something you see every day, which... It's no not. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> no shit there. But... <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. Were yeah. you drinking Hermione's juice? <laughs> But aside from that, I mean, it, at least that was still true. They arrived in a powder blue carriage flown by horses. So yeah. that was, yes, that was accurate. Compared to how they've changed some things, I mean... I still can't pat him on the back for that. <laughs> it was in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you that. Plus, the book actually has more details about their arrival. What? Right? Shocking, I know. Once the carriage lands, a boy in pale blue robes jumps out of it and folds down golden steps. Wait, but that proves that there are male students at Bobatons. It is not an all-girls school like the movie showed. Exactly. This just messes with my whole mind. <laughs> but then the largest woman Harry has ever seen exits the carriage. That's one big woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Seamus. <laughs> She appears to be the same height as Hagrid, but seems to be somehow even more unnaturally large. Maybe because she's a woman? Sounds weird, but it's even more odd when you see an exceptionally tall yeah. woman. I still gotta say, if I would have seen Madame Maxine come out of that carriage, I'd have been like, huh? huh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Once she reaches the light of the entrance hall, Harry can see that she has a handsome olive-skinned face, large black eyes, and a beaky nose. I feel like that's pretty spot on to how her face looked in the movie, The Actress. Yeah, definitely. The only real difference is that her hair is in a shining knot at the base of her neck, and she's wearing all black satin with opals, like, everywhere. Her neck, her hands, her ears, they're just... I kind of would have loved that. I know. It just sounds so elegant. And I feel yeah. like that could be what contributes to her appearing more unnaturally large. Like you have this super elegant looking woman that's mm -hmm. 17 feet tall. That yeah. just seems super crazy. Yeah. And I, the movie, she was elegant in the movie, but not black satin elegant. There's a difference. Like, that Definitely. is sort of sexy. She was... <laughs> she was for sure very well put together yes. in the movie. And I she agree. was very... Proper, I guess. She acted very proper, but she was, you're right, she was not black satin proper, you know? And I feel like 
Hagrid took one look at that black satin and was just like, hello. <laughs> hello, big lady. Is it me you're looking for? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone breaks into applause and she smiles as she walks to greet Dumbledore. He welcomes her warmly and barely has to bend to kiss her outstretched hand. The closest the movie got to this is Dumbledore appearing out of fucking nowhere to walk her up the aisle in the Great Hall. Yeah. Because doesn't he kiss her hand at the end of that, too? Yeah, he kisses her hand. And he does barely have to bend. Mm-hmm. Movie magic. What? In the book, she asks after him, calling him Dumbledore, <laughs> before she waves one of her enormous hands behind her and introduces her pupils. Until this point, Harry has been focused on Madame Maxime. Understandably so. She's probably a little distracting. A little bit. But he now notices the dozen or so boys and girls standing behind her all dressed in silk robes, shivering and looking apprehensively at the castle. See, Newell? See? Boys. Boys. There are boys there. It's not all girls. School. Yeah. Stupid. Madame Maxime asks Dumbledore if Karkaroff has arrived yet, and he tells her that he should be here any moment. Dumbledore asks if she would like to wait to greet him or if they would like to step inside and warm up. She says she thinks they would like to warm up, and when she mentions her horses, Dumbledore says that Hagrid, their Care of Magical Creatures teacher, would be delighted to care for them. She tells him to make sure this Hagrid knows that the horses drink only single malt whiskey, and Dumbledore bows, assuring her it will be attended to. This line was included in the movie as well, though it was at the staff table and Madame Maxime says it directly to a Twitter-pated Hagrid. He's so flustered. I love He's it. He's so flustered. <laughs> also, though, single malt whiskey for the horses? Right? I mean, do they get like a trough of the stuff? <laughs> Is it like a feed bucket that hooks up to them and they drink out of it? Or do they have like horsey shot glasses? Or do they prefer it on the rocks? You've thought way too much about this. Whiskey for horses is weird. <laughs> it's pretty whiskey. <laughs> you made a pun. I love it. Sometimes I give in to your dark side. <laughs> Stay for a while. <laughs> but Madame Maxime and the students from Bobaton's head inside and the students continue waiting for Dermstring to show up. Seamus asks Harry and Ron how big they think the Durmstrang horses are going to be. And Harry figures that if they're any bigger than this lot, then even Hagrid won't be able to handle them. He'll be needing his own single malt whiskey at that point. <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Hagrid probably <laughs> does eat like a horse. <laughs> Except I don't think horses eat stoats. You don't know. Maybe they do. I think they're vegetarian, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Anyway, a few moments pass and Ron suddenly asks if they can hear something. An eerie sound, like a rumbling and a sucking, is coming from the darkness. Lee Jordan points and shouts to look at the lake, where the smooth surface begins to bubble and waves are washing over the banks. A whirlpool appears in the middle of the lake and a large pole begins to emerge from it. Harry realizes that it's a mast and they all watch as a ship that looks like a resurrected wreck rises to the surface. This is also quite similar to how the movie did it, though, again, wrong time. Wrong time. <laughs> but right after the carriage nearly flattens Hagrid, it cuts to the mast rising up out of the lake. We then get the good wide shot of the whole ship before it cuts to Dumbledore talking at the feast. In the book, we again get more details. The ship glides towards the bank, 
and the people disembarking it are silhouettes against the ship's lights. They all seem to be built like Crab and Goyle, but as they approach, their bulk is shown to be mostly their large, shaggy fur cloaks. Yeah, those do tend to add quite a bit of bulk. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The man at the front of the group is wearing a sleek cloak of silver fur that matches his hair. He greets Dumbledore and asks after him, and Dumbledore replies and thanks Karkaroff. He's built similarly tall and thin, but Karkaroff's hair is short, and he has a goatee that doesn't quite hide his weak chin. I've always said that the first sign of a weak man is a weak chin, so just remember that. In this case, it's absolutely accurate. Exactly. (laughs) Karkaroff looks up at the castle and says, Dear old Hogwarts, with a smile on his lips that does not reach his eyes. Which could totally mean it was sarcastic. Still doesn't mean he wasn't a student there. True, but I'm going to go ahead and still say that he went to Durmstrang. (laughs) I'm still going to say Hogwarts. All right. But he says how good, how good it is to be there, and trails off for a moment before he hurries along a boy named Victor, who has a slight head cold, eager to get him into the warmth of the castle. As the boy walks by them... Ron and Harry recognize the curved nose and thick black eyebrows of none other than Victor Crumb. It's Victor Crumb! (laughs) But notice that there were no spectacles of their entrance in the book. No. No lactating butterflies, no banging sticks and manly grunting. They just show up and head inside. Even when we get to the feast portion of the book in the following chapter, it's not a spectacle. So we'll talk more about that next week. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't have any actors to talk about because, well, we already did that the first time we talked about this corresponding movie scene. So we'll just roll right into the Potter pondering, which is, what are your thoughts on how the movie included the arrival of Bobatons and Durmstrang during the start of term feast rather than in October as the book has it? Find the post on our Facebook page and share your thoughts. We really look forward to reading them. This will bring us to our sorting hat story, which is from our newest patron, Kylie Kamioka. Yay! Her house is Ravenclaw. Her Patronus is an eagle, which is very fitting. Her wand is black walnut, unicorn hair, ten and three quarters, unyielding flexibility. She writes, A friend introduced me to Harry Potter in the third grade. I had the strange obsession with large books. We probably had some kind of bet slash dare going on who could read the biggest book. I love that. That's amazing. I tried starting with number four and didn't finish since I had no idea what was going on. That's so fun since we're on number four. Mm -hmm. After going back and reading number one, my mom bought all of them up to number five at the time. My grandma found number six in large print. I'm visually impaired. And my mom got me number seven on opening night. I don't think I really understood how great these books were the first time I read them. It wasn't until quarantine when I went back through them that I really got into it again. I found the podcast through the Half-Blood Princesses. I remember thinking you guys do great audio descriptions for the movie. Then I went back and watched all the movies with audio description and was thoroughly amazed at how much I had been missing. Aww. Thank you so much, Kylie. And if any of you other keepers out there listening would like us to read your Sorting Hat story on a future episode, you can email it to us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com. Let us know your house, wand, Patronus, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else you might want to share with us. Or you can message it to us over social media. 
And that'll bring us to this week's trivia question, which is, what dessert does Ron shift to the side to try and entice the Vila girl to come back over to the Gryffindor table? The prize for the first one who responds with the correct answer and the code word hashtag come and get it will get a sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us through iTunes. If you don't have an Apple account, then you can write us a recommendation on our Facebook page. Make sure to email us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com to let us know you did and we'll get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook at JKR Podcast and Twitter and Instagram at Just Keep Rolling. Following us on Podbean at justkeeprolling.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. You can also go to our website at justkeeprolling.com to check out our Just Keep Rolling and Harry Potter related merchandise for sale. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we post our weekly podcast episodes, cooking show episodes, vlogs, bloopers, and other random videos. If you would like to support us as a patron, you can sign up on patreon.com slash justkeeprolling. $2 and up a month will get you some awesome perks like Just Keep Rolling swag, access to patron-only Facebook groups, chats, our Discord channel, virtual hangouts, and more. As always, any support you can give is greatly appreciated. And join us next week when we talk about the first half of Chapter 16, The Goblet of Fire and the corresponding film scenes. Thanks for listening. We hope you hear us again. I'm Katie. I'm Ellen. Until the next time, just, just keep, keep rolling. rolling.